on. I'm on three seas. <laughs> Look, there goes the game. You're listening to Ithaca Now. WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Leah McDermott. Thanks for joining us. On tonight's show, Caroline Grass tells us about the ornithology lab at Cornell University. And Sarah Payne gives us tips about summer safety. But first, we have Blake Matthews with Community Beat and George Christopher with this week's Politics Beat. Canal, I'm Blake Matthews. On Friday night, firefighters were called to the scene of a large fire in the Ithaca jungle. The Ithaca jungle is a location behind Fulton Street known for the local homeless population shelters. Because the street lacked a firefighter apparatus, responders needed to use over a thousand feet of hose to put out the fire. Two days later, and just after 4 a.m., firefighters responded to reports of a person trapped inside an apartment building in Tompkins County. Due to the extreme heat, smoke, and flames, firefighters were forced out of the building. One person has died, and another person was taken to the nearby Syracuse Hospital from the apartment fire. With New York State enforcing a burn ban in effect until May 14th, it is important to remember fire safety. Always have an evacuation plan, turn off your stove and oven after every use, and reach out to the Fire Prevention Bureau of Ithaca or your local fire department with further tips and tricks on how to prevent fires. At the Ithaca Mall, people can access the public COVID testing site operated by Cayuga Health. The COVID testing location is closing on May 5th due to a notable lack of usage. According to officials, the public funding for the program ended back in January and Cayuga Health has been funding the cost not submitted to insurance sense. Despite the public location closing, it is still possible to get a COVID test by attending walk-in appointments at Cayuga Health Immediate Care or at a physician's office. Cayuga Health also states that residents seeking a COVID-19 test must meet the criteria for the test to be medically necessary or pay out of pocket. Currently medically necessary for a PCR test is defined as experiencing symptoms, being exposed, or preparing for a medical procedure. However, the public can still access free self-test kits for COVID-19 at local libraries or at the municipal offices. And as of April 26, 13 people or 2.7% of residents have tested positive for COVID-19, five people have been hospitalized with COVID-19, and no new deaths have been reported. Nationally, the cases and deaths due to COVID-19 have been declining as well. Ithaca Police Department Acting Chief John Jolly has announced that he is taking an indefinite personal leave from his position as head of the Ithaca Police Department. Jolly has confirmed that he will challenge the city of Ithaca in a court case, noting that the city subjected him to a hostile work environment. Jolly cites his leave will allow him to focus on personal wellness. 
This comes after Jolly, along with two other members of the department, were recently cleared of any wrongdoing in an investigation where the state police looked into allegations of overtime fraud. For Ithaca Now, I'm Blake Matthews. This is your weekly politics beat. I'm George Christopher. The Ithaca Common Council is considering increasing the salary for the city's police chief. According to the Ithaca Voice, the raise was suggested by the headhunting firm the city has hired to find the next chief. The proposed raise would bring the chief's salary up to $150,000, a raise of almost $18,000. It would also involve a $50,000 signing bonus. The proposal was approved by the city's administration committee and will move to a vote by the Common Council. The city's search for a chief has been long and winding. The initial search came down to three candidates, including Acting Chief John Jolie and former IPD Lieutenant Scott Garin. The city's search committee recommended Garin for the job, but Mayor Laura Lewis ultimately chose to nominate Jolie. However, after it was clear Jolie didn't have the support of the majority of the Common Council, Lewis withdrew the nomination. The Tompkins County Ethics Advisory Board issued its ruling on the ethics complaint leveled by Common Councilor Cynthia Brock against the reimagining public safety process and former Mayor Savante Myrick. According to the Ethical Voice, the TCEAB determined Mayor Myrick did engage in two ethics violations and four appearances of violations, although they also said the violations didn't seem to be intentional. The board found no wrongdoing on the part of the working group's co-heads, Karen Yearwood and Eric Rosario, or the nonprofits which supported the process. Reporting for Ithaca Now, I'm George Christopher. You're listening to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Leah McDermott. The Cornell Ornithology Lab traces its history back to over 100 years when the university hosted one of the country's first ornithology professors, Arthur A. Allen. Ornithology, the study of birds, remains a crucial part of Cornell's sciences program. WICB correspondent Caroline Grass has more. Look at the outer edges of the tail feathers. The downies have... Ken Hawes, a volunteer leading a beginner bird walk around Sapsucker Woods at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, explained the difference between hairy and downy woodpeckers to the group. The bill also is larger on the hairy than it is on the downy. The eight people who attended the walk leaned in to look at his copy of the Peterson Field Guide to Birds as he talked about the birds they were seeing that morning. Every weekend, volunteers from the Cayuga Bird Club run the sessions to educate people and help foster their love of nature and birds. And typical woodpecker, you know, up the side of the tree. Haas moved to the Ithaca area eight years ago and has been part of the Cayuga Bird Club for the last seven. He is now the vice president of the club, and he explained how the Lab of Ornithology is a hub for bird enthusiasts. It's been kind of a dream come true, because if you're a birder at just about anywhere in the country, but especially in the Northeast, the Lab of Ornithology to me has always been like the mothership. It's the place to go. That's a world-class leading organization coming out with programs and apps like eBird and now Merlin and all of the other things that they do. So it means so much to me to just be a small part of that. The lab has a mission to, quote, interpret and conserve the Earth's biological diversity through research, education, and citizen science focused on birds. 
Innovative technologies are developed at the lab to aid in research and conservation efforts that ordinary people can contribute to. The lab is home to the McCulley Library, which is an archive of over 49 million audio, photo, and videos of birds and other wildlife. Since 1929, over 10,000 species of birds have been cataloged through collected media. The data is used by scientists, educators, and have even been used for movies and TV shows. Mike Webster, professor in the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior at Cornell and director of the Macaulay Library, explained what the library looks like. The Macaulay Library is an actual place. Um, so we have a space in the building that is the, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And inside that space, we have a lot of studios where the staff work to turn raw field recordings of birds and nature into what we call media specimens. So every recording we think of as a specimen, very much like any other biological museum, except for in most museums, the specimens that they have are bones and feathers and things like that. Um, our specimens are all recordings and they capture the the voices of animals, um, the behavior of animals, the signals of animals. And then we have a room that is full of old reel-to-reel tapes and cassette tapes that is our storage for the old collection, which was started back in 1929. And so all of the first several decades of the collection were on tape, and they're all stored back there, but now we've digitized them. And now all of the recordings that come in are digital. They're not on tape anymore. Most of the recordings are actually up in the cloud. So when you access Macaulay Library online, you're actually tapping into the cloud and hearing our recordings that are stored up there. Anyone can upload media to be archived through eBird, which is a website where over 870,000 people log their bird sightings. That's our citizen science like bird sightings project. It's a global a database of you know kind of the checklists of birds that people have seen at different spots and we're using that for all sorts of cool kind of studies on and research on bird populations and trends and and with each of these checklists the users can upload photos of the birds sounds of the birds and videos um, and then all of that gets housed in the macaulay library so the cool thing is it's like also this community contributed resource of like over a million recordings that are powering this That was Drew Weber, who is the Merlin project manager at the lab. Launched in 2014, Merlin Bird ID is an app that helps birders identify the birds they see. The app asks the color, size, and behavior of the bird that was seen and will help give possible options to what the bird could be. In 2017, the app was expanded with Photo ID, where users can snap a photo and the app will identify the bird. And in 2021, Sound ID was released. It actually started off as a very simple app. Um, It covered 285 species, which were for the U.S. and Canada, which is like some of the most common species that you'd find in your backyard, but not like very comprehensive. In 2016, we started expanding uh, more globally. And so we added, you know, a lot, basically completed coverage for the U.S. and Canada. So now we have, you know, 900 species covered. Um, We expanded to Mexico and kind of like continued down through Central and South America and the rest of the world. And actually, just this month, uh, a week ago, we released kind of the the last bird packs that we're going to release. Like, we basically covered all the birds of the world that we have content for. Under the Sound ID feature, users can start an audio recording, and the app will identify the birds it hears in real time. Weber said that the Sound ID feature has driven the expansion of Merlin to a wider audience. 
In regions with SoundID, Weber said that currently over 300,000 people use SoundID in a day, and that he expects the usage to grow in the coming months when birdsong is at its peak. That was actually a really fun project to uh, get started on because it hadn't really been done in the way we wanted to do it, which was uh, showing kind of live identifications to you as you're hearing the birds and just kind of like continuing to show those identifications over and over um, so that, you know, as you as you're listening to the birds, as you're seeing the interface kind of flash the answers up to you, you can like start to learn like, oh, this is what a song sparrow sounds like. This is what a house finch sounds like. And uh, yeah, Sound ID has been super successful. We've expanded that to um, basically all the birds of uh, US and Canada, as well as Europe. And then we have kind of like widespread species covered for uh, parts of Asia, specifically India and Central and South America. One of the huge challenges for us is we need at least 100 good sound recordings of each species to really get the uh, kind of like variation and repertoire into the, the machine learning model. And so we're still working with, you know, communities across the world to build up enough of an audio collection that we can, you know, continue to expand sound ID. Stephanie Herrick, president of the Cayuga Bird Club, said she loves to use the technology of Merlin, which helps her identify birds. That technology is so cool. And one of the things I work at Cornell, one of the things that I got to engage in was the very early teaching of Merlin. So when they were designing the software, they had to figure out, well, how do people identify birds? And that's how they came up with that list of, of questions that they ask in the identify the bird button, that first button that you see in Merlin. So that was fun seeing Merlin at, at its very beginning and see it change. I use Merlin most of the times that I go out and even sometimes just standing in my backyard to see, hey, is anybody new showing up? I've fed it pictures of birds that I've seen around my feeder area where I thought, why is that on my feeder? That can't be what I think it is. And the photo ID will identify it for me. A 2019 study from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, American Bird Conservancy, and other groups found that 2.9 billion birds in North America were gone from 1970. In the last 50 years, forests lost 1 billion birds, and bird populations in grasslands were found to have declined by 53%. The study also found that 2.5 of the 2.9 billion birds, or 90%, lost were from the 12 common families, including sparrows, blackbirds, and finches. The first step to helping preserve bird populations is knowing where existing populations are. Webster talked about how monitoring birds can help scientists understand how larger ecosystems are faring. I'm passionate about saying birds just because I love them. They're just amazing animals. But birds are also very useful. They're a lot more visible and they do sing. They make a lot of noise. So it's easier to notice birds and to monitor their populations and to survey them than it is for like lizards or most mammals, for example, are nocturnal. They're out at night and they slink around under under the grass and you don't see them. So they're very hard to monitor, but birds are out there at the day. They're, they're singing, they're vocalizing, they're making a lot of noise. They're often very colorful and easy to spot. And they do serve as sort of a canary in a coal mine also because they are sensitive to environmental perturbations. And so by monitoring how birds are doing, we can get a sense of how the whole ecosystem is doing. Weber talked about how data on birds can help people better understand the area around them on both a small and large scale. We 
we've been developing these kind of map products that show like each month of the year where birds are predicted to be. And so it's useful for like people who want to develop their land or preserve their land for, you know, increased biodiversity. It helps them understand what birds should be in their area. And we can also use this data to see the trends of birds over the past like 10, 20 years now that we've been collecting this data. And so you can see, you know, where um, wood thrush, for example, is really declining or where it's really recovering. And this is also helpful for both like landowners and nonprofits to kind of understand what's going on in their backyard. But it's also been used by government agencies to track, you know, how, how the health of the birds are going. Um, and yeah, there's, there's a kind of a lot of like different ways you can um, use that data either on like a really small scale, like trying to, trying to plant um, native plants in your gardens to increase bird um, diversity in your backyard, all the way up to like, you know, U.S. and Fish and Wildlife Service managing their, their refuges and um, understanding the timing of different birds coming through and, and when they'd want to close certain areas and that sort of thing. Much of the data for analysis comes from citizen scientists who record species in their own backyard. Webster said outreach and education is important to get people interested about birds, which in turn helps conservation efforts. It's critically important to educate people about birds and to get them interested in birds and get them engaged with birds because people will only preserve what they love. And by helping people understand birds and understand how amazing they are and how they are a great entry point to just appreciating nature in general, we're helping people care about those environments that need saving. And that's, that's a critically important step in making conservation happen. The Macaulay Library exists because of the really dedicated efforts of a lot of enthusiastic bird recordists. You know, we don't, we don't pay people to run around the world and record birds. These recordings are coming from people who just like doing it and have liked doing it for decades. And, you know, if it weren't for them contributing all of their recordings that they go out of their way to make and work really hard to get really good recording of species that are difficult to record, if it weren't for them, we wouldn't exist. And, and I really appreciate those efforts of, of all those dedicated bird watchers and bird recordists who just love doing this kind of work. The Cayuga Bird Club has helped foster people's love for birds for the last 110 years. The club has over 300 members and holds monthly meetings and invites guest speakers to talk. They also host bird walks and field trips, and they help maintain and preserve natural lands in the southern end of Cayuga Lake through the work of their Conservation Action Committee. The club focuses its work around three main objectives, conservation, education, and appreciation. The club accepts anyone with any skill level, and Herrick emphasized that birding is for everyone. And one of the first things I ask people is, do, do you like birds? Do you enjoy seeing birds? Do you have fun learning more about birds? And they usually answer yes, yes, yes. I said, well, then you're a birder. You don't have to have a life list this long and a scope this large. And you're a birder. Birds are bellwethers of sorts where we've seen billions of birds dis disappear over the years. And that is telling in terms of what we're doing to the planet that we all inhabit. So by getting people to appreciate birds at any age also gets them to appreciate the environment that we're all living in together. So one of the things that I've noticed about myself is that when I got involved with the bird club, I really have only been in the club for about three going on four years. 
I suddenly became very interested in habitat improvement. So I've been quite active with many others on our conservation action committee. We engage local schools to bring kids out to do these habitat improvement projects and go birding so that they can see why they're engaged in this work. Haas said that people from all over the world attend the bird walks at the lab in addition to locals, and he recounted a memory where families were translating the knowledge he was sharing into different languages for their family members. He said the experience of sharing his knowledge is rewarding, and he loves that these walks and the work of the Lab of Ornithology can help people appreciate the world around them. And I'm thinking to myself, this is great. Look what I'm doing here. I'm helping these people to appreciate the outdoors, to learn about birds, and if I'm lucky, they'll go and spread that word to their other family members, friends all over the world. And it seems that everybody in any part of the world has a fascination about birds. And if they have just an inkling in interest and they come here, it'll just fan that flame. For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. Last week, Bangs Ambulance and the Ithaca Fire Department had to perform two rescues, when according to the Ithaca Voice, one person was found unconscious while swimming and another was trapped on a steep slope. Safety personnel are urging residents to stay safe this summer. WICB correspondent Sarah Payne has more. Last week, the yearly Ithacon event was held on the campus of Ithaca College. WICB correspondent Liv Salenza filled this report. With summer around the corner, more and more people will be spending time outside in the sun. Although the summer season can bring a boatload of fun, the hot weather and action-filled activities can harbor risks too, especially if one is ill-informed on how to protect oneself. On Friday, April 21st, two individuals had to be rescued in back-to-back situation at the Ithaca Gorges. The incident that happened earlier in the day, a little past 5 p.m., saw Banks Ambulance and firefighters assist an unconscious person who was swimming at the Six Mile Creek near the 30-foot dam. The person was described as being in, quote, significant medical distress and also as having the necessity to be evacuated from the area. The individual was put in the ambulance. As responders were dealing with the initial incident, they were informed of a second person that needed assistance that was located close by. Workers utilized ropes to help the person that was reportedly, quote, stuck on a steep slope and unable to proceed further, end quote. The incidents took two hours to help. A person can enjoy the summer safely if they plan ahead and are aware. The IFD Public Information Officer, Jim Wheel, recommends that one, quote, stays on the trails, don't swim in unsafe areas, carry a cell phone, and know where you are in case you need to call for help, end quote. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in the section of their website about family health, also notes the importance of water safety during the summer, including supervising children, learning how to swim, and wearing life jackets when on a boat. Furthermore, they emphasize the need to know CPR, which could save many lives. To avoid overheating, 
One should use sunscreen with SPF 15 or more, wear lightweight, loose clothes, and avoid wearing darker clothes that absorb heat. The CDC also notes that taking cool showers can be beneficial as to prevent overheating. Bug spray should be utilized also. For more general purposes, the CDC mentions that people should have the proper protective gear with them for any specific activity. For instance, one should wear a helmet when biking or a harness when rock wall climbing. One of the most vital things to remember is that one should have the skills to perform first aid when needed. A first aid kit should be available. Summer is a time for adventure and exploration, and in order to truly make the most of the season, it is important to be prepared and safe. For the Canal, I'm Sarah Payne. Hiya, or how are you actually, is WICB's podcast focused on student mental health, hosted by Caitlin Smith. Here's a preview of the latest episode. It is April. We are on the back end of semester two right now. We're getting ready for finals. Weather's starting to get a lot nicer, which is amazing. But there is still a lot of stress happening, a lot going on. And I felt like now was the perfect time to talk about this very broad topic, but very important topic, which is burnout. So burnout occurs when people experience chronic stress that leaves them feeling exhausted and drained. The World Health Organization actually classifies it as an occupational phenomenon. Um, However, it strikes college students, other high school students, people in academia as well. And there have been a bunch of studies into college students and burnout just because it is such a well-known and prevalent thing. So a study by the National Library of Medicine, a sample of 506 students were used for this study, and they found that the prevalence of psychological distress was found in 27.1% of the students, and burnout was found in 7.3% of the students. Academic performance in general was unaffected in relation to either the psychological distress or the burnout, but it was still prevalent within the students. Also, the same paper by the National Library of Medicine states that burnout is a multifaceted construct characterized by various degrees of emotional exhaustion, which is the feeling of not being able to give the best, both physically and psychologically, depersonalization, which is a negative or distance attitude towards other people, also defined as cynicism or disbelief, and a low sense of personal accomplishment, which is just the tendency to feel incompetent. Reading those words, I found that to be extremely relatable. When I'm feeling burnt out, I feel distanced from other people. I feel like I'm not putting out great work. And that was said perfectly by this study. Another survey, which was led by The Ohio State University, surveyed the number of students suffering of burnout pre and post pandemic. They found that the feelings of burnout in 2020 were 31 percent versus 71% in 2021. So clearly the pandemic also had a tremendous effect on how students are feeling and how they're doing. Also, again, that adjustment back to normal life after the pandemic has had a great effect on students. I mean, you're used to not doing a lot and now you're doing the same or more than you were doing before the pandemic. Feelings of burnout are bound to occur, and that's exactly what this Ohio State University survey shows. And talking on a more personal level, I do have a lot of experience with 
dealing with burnout, especially back when I was in high school. I did not realize it at the time, but I was running on empty for the majority of the end of my freshman year and my sophomore year. I didn't have enough energy to do homework. I basically, I played two sports at the time. I would go home from school, go to one practice, then I would go to another practice. I wouldn't be home until 9, 9.30. Didn't have any energy to do homework. Barely was able to wake myself up for school the next day. I was doing my homework the class period before it was due. I wasn't studying for tests. I wasn't reading any assigned readings. It was it was really, really hard. And the one thing that I found actually helped me was taking a step back and actually relaxing. For me, that relaxation came during the pandemic, but obviously that might not be the case for everyone. You know, you can't just guess when another quarantine period is going to happen. So I would definitely say reassessing what you're doing and giving yourself the time to actually de-stress. And I talked about this also in the over-involvement episode, but giving yourself time to de-stress, time for yourself. And it's something I still struggle with today, honestly, is vitally important. And for me, I instantly see differences in my level of burnout and my amount of motivation to do things I love. Also, genuinely just doing things that you enjoy results in less burnout for me, at least personally. Um, I enjoy doing production. I enjoy doing all this media-related stuff. I don't enjoy doing things like science or math. So I found when I have been maybe equally busy, but I'm busy doing things I love, I tend to not feel as burnt out. But again, that isn't everyone's situation. So just finding the time to relax and rejuvenate, I would say, is key. Okay, so we clearly know that burnout is a big thing amongst college students, and it's definitely an issue. So I wanted to speak with just a couple of Ithaca college students about their experiences with burnout, how they would describe burnout on campus, and just get a few of their words. And they had some pretty fascinating things to say. I feel like it comes a lot more often than you think it would, especially in the winter months. You just get sad and lonely and it's dark and gloomy and you just want to sleep forever and nothing really seems to motivate you anymore, even the stuff that you love. So, um, yeah, it's it sucks. I mean, I've been burnt out of a lot of things. I think it's just because there's so much time to focus on certain things that you really want to do, it leads to a lot of people overcommitting, and I'm guilty of that as well. And you know, it ends up killing the passion you had for it because of overexposure to it. You know, that's classes, that's passions, that's hobbies. You know, college is just a very odd place, especially during the first year, where it can be very volatile to anything you're interested in, while also encouraging it. No, it just it feels very overwhelming. I think is the big thing, and. I think like the more overwhelmed you feel, the more you're susceptible to burnout because, you know, the less able you are to do things. So then it's just this endless cycle of trying to recover while just becoming more burnt out. So as you can see, burnout can manifest differently in everyone and each college student's experience is unique in whether or not they experience burnout, how they experience burnout and what coping mechanisms work to help relieve them of that sense of burnout.
So I had the opportunity of interviewing Elizabeth Bleicher, who is the head of the Office of Student Success and Retention here at Ithaca College. Fascinating person to talk to about this idea of burnout. Burnout is when, um, for me, is when it, it's a point of diminishing returns. It's when um, we're trying and aren't getting back the results that we either usually get or we're hoping to get in terms of expending our energy on trying to accomplish our work. So burnout, um, it's not the same as depression. It's not the same as anxiety. It's really more when um, we we exhaust the resources that we have, um, maybe mentally, maybe emotionally, maybe intellectually. And those are actually all different things. This is kind of an, well, it's a very interesting topic, but it's kind of hard to tease apart burnout from um, some other things that are happening. So students who went through COVID and lockdown in high school uh, and current college students who are trying to finish up um, have a different experience of college than the students who came before you. And so we're having a hard time teasing apart what's burnout and what is um a sort of a post-traumatic um, stress response to having lived through um, the, the pandemic and lockdown and trying to find motivation to do work. So I think that trying to distinguish burnout from that is difficult, and I don't necessarily know that it's entirely productive. I do know that a lot of people are struggling to get work done, and a lot of people are feeling tired, not in a way of feeling sleepy, but of feeling um, exhausted and like they are tapped out, like there's emptiness, mm -hmm. um, I, like we don't have enough to draw on in terms of our, our own resources. And so what that, that, that leads to sort of the diminishing returns. I try to study, it doesn't get me what I want. I try to study, I've read this paragraph nine times. Um, I studied, but I don't remember anything. Um, and that's that's different than I studied and I obviously didn't figure out the right way to study. And Elizabeth was able to give me more information about what exactly the Office of Student Success does and the resources that it can provide to IC students. We are here as a resource. We're a bridge. We get students connected to IC resources and the help they need. We help sometimes to broker connections for students who are feeling awkward or feeling um, worried. We help them reconnect with their faculty. We help them connect with um, folks on campus who are offering student services, who are offering mental health and wellness services. And sometimes we just offer students a place to talk and process what they're experiencing to see how, how, how we can help and who else can help them. Um, the office is also the sort of secondary response for students who have an academic concern. If they don't respond to their dean, the dean's office, after like three times and different methods, the dean's office says, hey, we're concerned. Can you check in? Can you can you try and locate this student? So we do that, too. So those are those are some of the roles that, that, that my part of the office plays larger. Um, the larger thing that the Center for Student Success and Retention does is we work with students who are um, in need of a leave of absence mm -hmm. or students who are coming back from a leave of absence. And we also conduct research to look for the problems that I see that are more systemic as opposed to you personally having a problem, I can help you. But if the problem you're having is one that lots of students are having, I'm going to try and work on the big picture too. Mm -hmm. So we're doing research to see what what um, 
what about how we run the college could be improved to make it possible for more of our students to be successful here? So um, CAPS is a phenomenal resource and um, the Center for Health Promotion is also terrific. Uh, they, the Center for Health Promotion and the JED Committee are running a Stop and Breathe Week. Uh, the week of May, I want to say it starts around May 4th, but you should check in with them because that is a week where different campus entities are sponsoring things that students can do to literally stop and breathe and take some perspective, step back, get out of the weeds of, you know, running and running and running and just um, try and do things that refill the well so that you're not as empty, so that you have some energy to draw on when you're heading into finals. And finally, Elizabeth was able to walk me through some techniques for students struggling with burnout. You got to refill the well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that means different things for different people. One of the single best ways that you can sort of address your own energy levels is to look at, um, to look at your sleep, to look at your exercise, to look at your food and to look at your, your spirit and your sense of self. And, um, it's paradoxical, but with depression and with burnout, finding time to exercise can have a really big impact on your lift. It's the fastest way to get a bump in your mood is to exercise. If you're not someone who abuses exercise, um, spending time in nature, no matter where you are, even in cities, there are little patches of green, um, people uh, you know, feeding the pigeons in a park in an urban area. There's all sorts of ways to, to experience nature. And so any contact with nature is usually a good thing. It's interesting because now um, physicians are increasingly prescribing uh, time in nature as a way of helping people, helping people not just cope, but restore themselves. And we, I think we're, we're beyond self-care now. I think we're talking about self-restoration. Mm-hmm. So right. those, are some, those are some really immediate strategies that people can employ. And meditation, I know that people think that sounds airy-fairy and weird. There are a ton of free meditation apps um, that folks can use. I know here at IC, we have a subscription to Sanvelo, which is a mental health app that is a tremendous resource. But there are tons of free apps that offer um, free meditation and guided meditation and music for people to use. Um, I personally use music as my as my form of restoration. Um, it's you know I will leave to your imagination what it looks like for a, a middle aged woman to be dancing K pop in her office. But you know that's um, it works for me. Everybody's going to find something that works for them. I also want to share that there are also resources specifically for students and people of color um, who who are really seeking very specific um, meditation resources. And so that is something that you can Google and, and look for and identify as well. I know that that resource is listed um, on the IC um, site, I think for the Center for Health Promotion. There's one specific one that is free and specifically for POC folk. Elizabeth also wanted to add that after you take your breath, you should refocus on your why. Ask yourself questions like, what is the grounding reason for putting yourself through college? What is the big picture goal? What is in this for you? Not your parents, not your reputation, you as a person. Refocusing on the big picture gets you out of the weeds and can help you as you are recharging your batteries. Also, asking yourself negative questions like, when am I ever going to use this, defeats the purpose of trying to recover from burnout.
She also wanted to add that if you have lost your big picture or want help finding a purpose, that is what the Office of Student Success is here for. Oh, we are easy to find uh, online. Uh, my, my email address is success at ithaca.edu. And I'm happy to talk with, um, with your listeners who are students here at IC. I'm also happy to talk with folks outside of IC because I'm always looking for people who are interested in the work of helping students learn how to college and be happy and successful in college and then graduate and leave us, which is the <laughs> ultimate goal. But my email is success at ithaca.edu. That's it for this week's Ithaca Now. You can listen to all our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear the show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support and assistance from manager of television and radio operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB station manager, Connor Hibbard, and pro programming director, Harrison Kona. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by news director, George Christopher, with assistance from news production director, Leah McDermott, our web coordinator, Mbiani Uburasan, and social media coordinator, Chess Cabrera. All of the music from this show's intro and outro comes from Dr. Dundiff of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, story ideas, just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday.